In your worship guide, you can find the official introduction for our guest preacher this morning, Dr. McKay Caston. I'm going to give you the real deal. Why is McKay here this morning? McKay loves Jesus. And McKay knows how to help other people learn to love Jesus. And he knows how to help other people help other people learn to love Jesus. And that's why he's here this morning. Uh, Because we want to learn from people who are good at sharing their faith with others so that we can grow in that as well. And uh, as we were thinking of putting together a team of folks for this short series on uh, helping our neighbors come to know and love Jesus as we have learned to do, um, I just don't know more more people who's, with whose hearts I would trust you. Um, and McKay is one of those folks. So just so thrilled to have him this morning along with Christy, his bride, and uh, looking forward to what God teaches us through this, his son and his servant. McKay? Uh. Yeah, it truly is. It's, it's so great to be here. Um, I'm honored and counted a huge privilege. Uh, as far as loving Jesus and sharing him with your neighbors, this is so easy. I mean, this is so easy. The, the reason why anyone loves Jesus is because they have been loved by Jesus. It's really simple. And the way we see him love us is by him giving his life unto death for us to reconcile us to the Father through his blood, where he served the sentence that we deserved as traitors before heaven. Again, this is not complicated. It's really quite, quite simple and, and easy to get. And so my calling, my job today is really, really, really not, not challenging uh, because what I intend to show you is simply Jesus. And we're going to look at John 4 in just a little bit uh, after I have Jim come up and read. But first, uh, I want to introduce a few things from this passage that might be unfamiliar or sound confusing to you. So before we get to John 4, a few things you're going to hear. Uh, One is about a well. It's called Jacob's Well. Jacob was a patriarch, one of the fathers of Israel in the Old Testament. He dug a well about 2000 BC for his livestock and for his family, was to provide water for them. By the first century AD, around 30 AD or so, it's about 100 feet deep. And we know that because that well still exists today, and it still produces water today. So the well in this passage uh, is just one small indication that what we are reading and talking about concerning Christ is not legend, it's not a fable, it is a true story rooted in real history, okay? So Jacob's well, we're reading about, still exists. You can go and draw water from it and be satisfied by very old, old water. I guess all water is the same age officially, but... It's cool to know that the well is still there. Uh, 
we're also going to read about an encounter that Jesus has at the well with this woman of uh, this region called Samaria. And it happens at the sixth hour. For some ears, that might sound odd. Uh, in ancient Jewish culture, the first hour started at sunrise, which is like 6 a.m. The sixth hour would have been around noon, and the twelfth hour would have been at sunset. That's kind of how their day went. So first hour, sixth, twelfth, and you had night watches. Anyway, the, the point of saying this is the sixth hour is simply to indicate that this encounter took place in the heat of the day. That's all you need to know right now. But where is this town? The well is near. We're going to read it's called Sychar in this place called Samaria. Most of us probably do not know where that is, just off the top of our heads. And so you'll see on a map that Sychar was a town in Samaria, and Samaria is the region between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. So to put it in perspective, Jerusalem is in the south in Judea, and in the north in Galilee is the hometown of Jesus, Nazareth. And that's about 90 miles as the crow flies, just for some geographical perspective. And concerning Samaria, we're going to read that there were tensions between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And so without going into a lot of detail, I simply want you to know that the tensions were uh, deep-seated and centuries old. They stemmed from political divisions, theological differences, and cultural differences. And they didn't, oil and water, that they did not associate deep-seated Hadfield-and-McCoy-type rivalries going on here. So when Jesus engages this uh, Samaritan woman at this well, he breaks down massive walls of human prejudice. And in so doing, he will eventually show us and teach us about the mission-motivating power of drinking what he calls living water. So Jim, if you'd come and read for us. Selections from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Uh, water is a significant theme throughout the Bible, starting from the earliest parts of Genesis, where a river is mentioned, to the very, very end of Revelation, where there's a river mentioned. And throughout, uh, there's a significant emphasis on water. Water gives us life. And I wish we had time to go through all the references throughout Scripture concerning water. It's fascinating. Uh, but for us, with that being a major theme, this chapter in John 4 explores a, a universal truth to which each one of us can relate. Each and every one of us can, can relate to what this passage is about and what it's going to teach us. And it's this, that on this side of Eden, every human is born with a seemingly unquenchable thirst not the kind you get from working in the yard, but a, a deeper thirst in the, in the human soul. This was true for the Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at Jacob's well in John 4. She obviously had a, a, a physical thirst. It's much easier to diagnose a, a physical thirst than it is a spiritual soul thirst. And here we see her exerting extreme effort uh, we won't get into why it's the middle of the day that she's there, possibly, but the fact is, it's the heat of the day, it's the sixth hour, and now you know when that is, right? Okay. It is noon. So, she's just laboring. This is a, a, a ten-story deep well. Imagine the exertion of effort you'd have to have to, to put a, a bucket down and then to crank it ten stories up and then draw it down again. Ten stories up. 
I mean, she must have had serious forearms. You'd have to just imagine that would have been quite a workout because you go back there every day and do this over and over and over again. But what her soul most deeply craves is not water from the ground. She longs, craves, thirsts to be loved and accepted and fully known all at the same time. We know this because a little bit later in the chapter, Jesus exposes that deeper inner soul thirst by inviting her to just confess confess how she has been drinking, not only from Jacob's well, but from the well of serial relationships, one after the other after the other. Sadly, uh, each bow that she had pursued was, or who had pursued her, was more interested in using her than loving her. After five husbands, and now with a live-in boyfriend, I imagine she would do just about anything to experience being known, being loved, and being accepted. But like a mirage in the desert, such a soul-quenching experience continued to be elusive. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. Such a hard hard pursuit, truly a desert for her to quench the thirst in her soul. And so she remained spiritually empty. And here's the problem. Any attempt to satisfy our spiritual thirst with worldly wells will leave us empty. Any attempt to satisfy our spiritual thirst with worldly wells will leave us empty. Whether those wells promise to provide more material resources or promise better personal circumstances. Like the Samaritan woman, we do the same thing. We, we drink from these wells. Maybe we have sought to quench our spiritual soul thirst with the hope of a romantic relationship, something satisfying relationally. But we know that even the best relationships struggle and none are able to meet our deepest spiritual need. We may try to quench that deep thirst by acquiring more or newer possessions, but again, we know that the shine wears off. We may try to quench that thirst with the pursuit of success, sometimes through obsessive overwork. But we know, again, this leads to emotional burnout, physical health problems, and in some contexts, relational brokenness because there has been neglect. There literally are thousands, thousands of empty wells of the world. And yet, we have to ask, is it wrong to want a satisfying relationship? Is it wrong to want a, a healthy, enjoyable, secure marriage? No, of course not. 
Absolutely, of, of course not. Is it inherently wrong to upgrade your phone? I sure hope not. <laughs> Is physical fitness evil in itself? No. Is it wrong to love being a parent? No. Not at all. Is it wrong to work hard and experience vocational success? Again, of course not. Because as our friend Tim Keller says, the problem is not that good things are bad. Right? The problem is when we make good things ultimate things. That's why I mentioned, is it bad to be a parent? Well, what, how can it be bad to be a parent? If we make our lives, our children's lives, absolute in what brings us an identity and a righteousness, and we live on that. Otherwise, we'll use them like that woman had been used. We can't love them. We can only use them. And so having children is great. Having them being successful is great. But the problem is when we make good things our ultimate things because making a good thing an ultimate thing turns it into an idolatrous thing. And when we drink from our idols' wells, our spiritual dehydration, I, that's all, try saying that ten times in a row. Spiritual dehydration only worsens. And, and we know this. Now, it is true that, that drinking from the wells of the world, things that even are, are good, just not old, that, that drinking from these wells can provide temporary satisfaction. We'd agree on that. Yeah, temporary satisfaction. The, the problem is that the relief, the satisfaction doesn't last, and eventually that soul thirst returns, even if we're not aware that it is a soul thirst. Remember, it's easy to detect a physical thirst. It is much more difficult to analyze and diagnose a spiritual thirst, and yet it it affects each and every one of us. We see this in the Samaritan woman's response to Jesus' offer of living water in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water. What you're talking about sounds altogether different than what I have been pursuing and drawing up day after day after day. Give me this water so that I will not get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We can... We can sense her exhaustion. She's desperate for something lasting, permanent, and satisfying. And yet day after day she's pursued it, and day after day she remains thirsty. And I suspect there are folks here who share that exhaustion, who, who are equally as desperate and you're willing to do just about anything to satisfy that craving in the soul. The good news is you don't have to do anything to have your soul satisfied because what we see is that Jesus is the one who actually provides what quenches our deepest thirst. The book of Exodus it recounts the story of the Israelites being delivered from slavery in Egypt through 
the Sinai Desert, and eventually to the land of promise. By chapter 17 in Exodus, the people grew thirsty, really thirsty. Deserts are not known for their abundance of water. And the same was true in the Sinai. And they begin to grumble against Moses, and they blamed the Lord for bringing them from Egypt into such a desolate place to die. They began to impugn the Lord's motives for this miraculous deliverance and now grumble and complain. And, you know, that is what spiritually thirsty people do. We get angry. We complain. We act out. We despair. And if we only knew that a lot of these outward actions are related to an inward spiritual thirst, they would help us so much. We know that theologically, that the law is good, and the law of God is that which shows us our rebellion against the wisdom of God, and it shows us our need for Jesus to be our justifier. But almost everything we encounter in this world that we would consider to be negative functions like the law in the same way that it leads us to find where we are at the end of ourselves when our wells run dry. It leads us to Him, not only for our justification, but for our peace, for our hope, for our joy, and for our sanctification, and for everything else, for our hope of glory. It all leads us to Him. And yet, it's in the anger stage of the Israelites' thirst that Moses prayed to the Lord for help because the people were about to kill him as God's representative for leading them out of Egypt into this desert where they were going to, in their minds, die. And so in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 17, the Lord says to Moses, Walk on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take along in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. And this, this rock, like the well, is still there. And it is not like a rock. Like this. It's more like, you know, a uh, small little mountain hill type of outcropping. And when you strike the rock, water will come out of it for the people to drink. For at minimum, hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking rivers of water, an unbelievably abundant, overflowing provision. They weren't going to have to just take a little. They could drink as much as they wanted and then some. Now, the Lord could have struck the people. I mean, after all, they showed a profound lack of gratitude if they could only have remembered what life had been like, and they were expressing a perpetually rebellious spirit, 
I mean, think about this. They didn't just despise their deliverance from oppression. They had devalued the blood that had been shed for their deliverance. Passover. All the lambs. All the perfect spotless animals. Blood put over the door frames. For nothing? No, no, not for nothing. But they had forgotten. Because in their thirst, they had become angry and despairing and mutinous and murderous. But instead of striking the Israelites, the Lord had Moses strike the rock, which the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says represented Christ. That rock was Jesus, the one who would be struck on a cross for sinners like them and like us. In fact, in John 19, as we go beyond John 4, down to the end of the gospel, we read these words from Jesus on that cross. In verse 28, knowing that everything had, been, everything had now been accomplished and to fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then two verses later we read him crying out, it is finished. With his death, Jesus experienced true and ultimate soul thirst so that we could have our souls quenched. As we have already noted, deep down the Samaritan woman's longing was to be known, to be forgiven, to, to be accepted, and to be loved. And this is precisely what the cross provides in abundance. Like that rock in the desert overflowing, here we see the cross providing in abundance for those who will drink the promise, will drink the promise of grace that flows not from a rock but from the cross where Jesus gave his life in the place of those who deserved to be struck but were not because he was struck for us. But the question remains, will you drink? Will I drink? Will we believe that this promise is true? Will we personalize this for ourselves? Will we drink? And apparently the woman at the well here, the Samaritan, uh, she drank deeply. And how do we know? because of what she does next. It's remarkable. After Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah later in the chapter, in verse 28, remember, she has just filled up these water jugs. These jars were, you know, she just exerted all the energy. Verse 28, the woman left her water jars 
and went back into the town about 0.7 miles. And you can think she's not walking. Imagine her at a quick pace with all, whatever, how long her dress would have been. She's moving out across this to go and, and tell the people, tell people who very likely had looked down upon her for her life, which might have been why she was by herself at the well at the middle of the day rather than with other women in the cool of the day. We don't know for sure. But she goes back to town and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, not literally, but he exposed her deepest need. And that's all she needed to think that he could see through to the depth of her heart. Come see this man. Could this be the Christ? Because even the Samaritans, in their theology that was different from the Jews, they had a similar expectation because their theology was still rooted in the early parts of the Old Testament. And so as she shared this, verse 39 says, we're skipping down, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of her testimony. But then she says, you've got to come and see him. And so they go out and they meet Jesus. He spends a couple days with them. And in verse 42, they said to the woman, we now believe that only because of your words we have heard for ourselves. They spoke to Jesus. And we know that this man truly is the Savior of the world. You see, once she tastes of this living water, it's like being fueled with the Gatorade of grace, where she now has been nourished, she is ready to go. In fact, she is compelled to invite her neighbors, even those with whom she had looked down upon her and despised her, saying, oh, you are not as reputable as we are. All she knew. She was once blind, but now she could see. She was thirsty, and now she was quenched. And it didn't matter who the person was. They need to come and meet this Jesus. She's compelled to invite her neighbors. What we see here is the mission-motivating power of drinking living water. And what she shows us is the more in need of grace you are, the more mission-motivating that water will be. In all of history, she stands out as one of the premier evangelists in all of Scripture and, and, and history. It's, it, she can, she single-handedly brings an entire city to Jesus. And she was the most sinful woman there. There are huge lessons there for us. Huge, huge lessons. So in town church, this is my exhortation uh, for you. Drink deeply and drink often of the soul-quenching, mission-motivating, living water of God's grace in Jesus. And as you drink, believe. And as you believe, magnify the cross. As you magnify the cross, savor the shed blood of Jesus. Celebrate the gift of His grace as the very defining truth of your life. Because when you've had your fill, when it's overflowing, you'll not be able to help but want others to come. You'll not be able to help but invite your neighbors to know Jesus.
and to drink with you. Because remember, on this side of Eden, every human is spiritually thirsty. That's why they're angry. That's why they look to material wealth for identity and comfort. It's why they're stuck in addiction. It's why, uh, at least for part of the reason why, they're depressed, anxious, and despairing. And I know this because I've been there. I've been all these people, angry, looking at material wealth, addicted, depressed, anxious, despairing. Haven't you? Haven't you experienced these things? If you have, then you know what it's like to be thirsty. And you're ready for Jesus. And maybe you're thirsty right now, and and maybe you're finally ready to drink uh, of this grace, and maybe for the very first time. And so if you are ready to believe that through the cross of Jesus, you are fully known by God and being fully known, fully forgiven, and perfectly accepted, and dearly treasured as His beloved child, if that is you, then I want to invite you to join me. Before we come to the table, I would invite you to join me in prayer as we drink deeply together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We confess that we have sought to quench our spiritual thirst with empty cisterns. But we also believe now, and some for the very first time, that you, Jesus, willingly thirsted unto death for us that our deepest thirst for forgiveness, acceptance, and love could be quenched now and forever to the praise of your glorious grace. And as we drink deeply by believing the gospel personally, Father, let the living water of your Holy Spirit overflow as we invite our neighbors to know Jesus and drink with us from the wellspring of grace together. If we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.